Welcome back, March Mad Men listeners. Tonight's episode exhumes J.A. Bayona's The Orphanage, El Orfanato. We also conclude a contentious matchup. Enjoy. And we are back. Myself, I just put my, I think it's, yeah, my third Sam Adams Oktoberfest into my skull mug. Uh, My wonderful wife bought me some Oktoberfest to celebrate the season that we happen to be in. (laughs) God damn it. Whatever whatever year it is. Yeah, it could be any year. It could be 2019, 2020, 2025. Who knows? But uh, yeah, I happen to be drinking Oktoberfest for whatever reason. Uh, Rich, what are you drinking? I am drinking, of course, thank you to our friends at Pizza Port um, for providing this week's. I'm actually doing Beach Retreat, the same one from the same batch that I had last time, their collab with, uh, with Beachwood Brewing, both two great breweries. I'm just throwing it out there, Pizza Port. You want to sponsor the podcast you could even name a beer after us. I know you do a lot of small, small pilot batches. Just throwing ideas out there. You could do like a, like a mash Mad Men. It could be a, a bourbon barrel-aged quad. Just saying. It's just an idea. That's a Pizza brilliant port. idea. Brilliant idea. And yeah, you have been a relentlessly loyal Pizza Port uh, supporter on this pod. So I don't think we've had one yet where Rich has not been drinking some Pizza Port products. So... Bravo for your consistency. And Vic, uh, what do you have tonight, man? Is it uh, 25% alcohol or what's the deal? I'm uh, I'm drinking a – I'm actually drinking scotch. That was just a seltzer water I got so I could open something on on mic there. Uh, There's my – I can't, you can't even hear the ice tinkling, but yeah, I'm drinking scotch, So what's which the, is what's way the, more than 25%. Yeah, I was about to say, what's the ABV on scotch? <laughs> <laughs> it's like 80 proof or something. I do like yeah. that you, you try to come in like ball swinging with the scotch, and then you talk about ice tinkling. <laughs> <laughs> there's no, there is no, there's no hyper-masculine way to say tinkling, is there? No. God, no. No. Tinkling. Uh, I don't think Charles Bronson ever used the word tinkling. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Death Wish. Death Wish Six. The tinkling. <laughs> I bet you're tinkling in your Levi's right now. Is he the high water mark for masculinity? Yes. You know, I think there's an argument to be made. Um, like it's it, Eastwood Bronson. Yeah. I think I think Bronson could take Eastwood. I think so too. I think so too. Man, did did anyone ever see like that uh that documentary on the the history of like Canon video or like or read anything about like the oral history of Canon video? I've read about the documentary, and I actually read a, a blog by a guy who used to do publicity for them, and he he has some wild behind the scenes stories. So is yeah. this our segue to Chuck Norris? <laughs> well, Chuck <laughs> Norris is also involved, but they were also the producers behind a uh, Death Wish. And I'm, I'm relatively sure. I did, don't send us any letters. No, wait. I forgot. Send us letters. Uh, <laughs> if not, correct us. Briefly but, touch on my Spanish pronunciation and then move on to canon. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure that they did both that and what was it, Invasion USA? Was the, was well, the Chuck- that's Chuck Norris. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, the, the doc is not fantastic, but the story is pretty great. Aren't they uh, uh, Israeli guys, I believe? Yeah. And something, something to that effect. 
Yeah. So maybe maybe you, maybe after you watch it, you can come back and give us your review and butcher their language. <laughs> well, my my pronunciation of Yiddish is fantastic. I'll have you know. I so, have no doubt. Yeah. I don't know how exactly we got on that topic, but <laughs> <laughs> why don't we get back to the orphanage? <laughs> so starring starring Charles Bronson as, <laughs> as Simone. <laughs> Well, uh, Vic, why don't you kick us off with your historical significance of your favorite ghost film ever made? My favorite ghost film ever made. Keep that sigh in when you edit this. <laughs> this is this is another movie that does not have a ton of historical significance. I, I like Juan Antonio Bayona, but he's not become a, a, a household name as a director. I think that there was there was the potential that this film could have been nominated for a foreign language Oscar, which I think would have been significant and would have lent a little more validity in the sort of Oscar uh, community to this type of horror film. It's certainly an art house horror film, and so it fits that. But I think there is still just a general prejudice among critics, uh, enough so that, that this film didn't even make the cut for that. So it it's not hugely significant historically. It didn't take any giant leaps forward in terms of impacting the genre. Again, Bayona didn't make any leaps after this that that really changed things. It's a very well-told story and you know takes some familiar tropes and does some interesting things with them. But the the ripple effect is is pretty in, insignificant. I'm afraid the the historical significance of this is not one of the selling points. Yeah, I, I do remember it getting an art house level of respect, and I do remember that at that time it was fashionable to produce these international prestige horror films that kind of straddled the line between classy genre fare and actual awards bait. Ahem, <clears throat> the others. Devil's Backbone, etc. The Orphanage is, certainly qualifies in that phylum. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to argue vociferously with anyone who says they're scared by this movie. I, I, I find several scenes you know, to be pure horror. It definitely has its balls-to-the-wall moments, and it doesn't feel neutered by its aspirations of mainstream or critical success. And if we're scoring this the way we did in the early rounds, I would actually say that the orphanage probably gets the edge on Terrified in terms of you know spilled ink and accolades up to this point. But fortunately, this round is not that black and white. It's what we think is the historical significance that matters most, though of course we can bring all that into um, our argument. But I just do want to throw out a, a few comments that other folks have made about the movie. Uh, one YouTuber called this a supernatural mystery drama, and I think that does sound quite apt. Even the truly horrific scenes, like the sounds of the kids at the orphanage dying of poisoning, which I think we get in the Geraldine Chaplin sequence, uh, they're, they're mitigated by the sweeping and classical, old-fashioned music 
the movie doesn't really commit to disturbing you in moments like that because it, it, it wants to win those festival awards and be the others for 2008. Uh, here's a point, though, that I think is is insightful. A writer for The Guardian said, this is kinder horror at its most emotive. And I googled that, and I don't think it's a thing, but it should be kinder horror. What a great word. Uh, and the writer says, what's so potent is that after the horror has died down, it's the very raw sense of loss and bereavement at the film's center. As emotionally wrought as a Ian McEwan novel, what makes you jump, and I'll hold my hands up, scream like a banshee, doesn't linger. It's the humanity of the thing that went bump in the night that makes you shudder for a long while after. Yeah, I, I, I think that's very fair. The New York Times said, the orphanage is a diverting, overwrought ghost story from Spain that relies on basic and durable horror movie techniques. Give a competent director a gliding camera, creepy music, and a dim hallway lined with doors, and a decent scare is likely to follow. Yeah, I do agree with that on the other hand. They also say, Metaphysical leaps can be forgiven if the underlying melodramatic architecture is sound. This is why no one pushes too hard against the premises of The Sixth Sense or The Others, two movies whose blending of the creepy with the weepy, The Orphanage, recalls. That's some good writing. And one last quote from this review. But in spite of its agility and the sincerity of Ms. Rueda's performance, The Orphanage never quite achieves the intensity it is clearly aiming for. You experience an occasional shudder, but not the deep, resonant unease that makes for a truly memorable nightmare. Well, I agree with that. All due respect to the film's fans, and those on this Skype call especially, I never thought that this was a special milestone film when I saw it in the theater, and I still don't. I'm not going to repeat myself, so if you didn't hear our last podcast on this subject, go check that out if you want my detailed and unvarnished opinion of the movie. But long story short, no, I I don't think the historical significance is going to be significant. Rich? I mean, some of the stuff that you're you're bringing up, I don't know exactly how much it centers on the historical significance, and I would frankly argue with the idea that this is not a horror movie. I think that it certainly earns its stripes as a horror film, even if it's just through a, a handful of pointed scenes. But that's that's aside. Maybe well, can, I, can, I, can I throw out one quick quote from director J.A. Bayona? Um, he said, I never thought of The Orphanage as just a horror film, says Bayona. I saw the emotional aspects, the spirituality. It's like a perfect thing, a very smart script. It's like a psychological portrait, a real drama of a woman who can't deal with loss. And I understand your point, Rich, and I don't want to, again, get back into the whole debate of, well, what is a horror movie and is this a horror movie or not? But um, I, I think what I'm, what I'm saying is it's, it's, if you want to argue about it, it's, it's very fair to say that that's not its number one aspiration. Sure, but that's also true of, like, The Devil's Backbone. And also, in that quote, he says it's not just a horror movie. He's not disavowing right. a horror movie. Yeah, yeah, I know. You're right. Just a couple notes that I made on the historical significance that, that haven't been covered yet. I mean, yes, I agree that Jay Bologna, 
Jay Bayona has not, <laughs> I feel like, uh, he hasn't set the world on fire, but as Vic pointed out before, um, he did a Monster Calls, which was a, a very good, definitely a movie that was had nods to the genre, but was by no means a, a horror movie. He, uh, I also want to point out, he did, he did Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, and this is not the kind of movie that I, that I frequently vouch for, but I was really struck when I was forced to watch that movie that it is absolutely the most horror adjacent of the entire Jurassic World franchise. It's basically just Resident Evil with dinosaurs. And if you haven't seen it and you're willing to watch a bloated, big-budget, late-in-the-game Jurassic Park sequel, I would say it's worth making time for it. There are parts of it that are legitimately unsettling. Where does that fall in the Chris Pratt-verse of Jurassic Park? I believe it's the it's the most recent it's the most recent released one. So it is the depending on what year you're listening to this, <laughs> um, it is the one that I believe it's the second Chris Pratt Jurassic uh, Park movie or the second Jurassic World movie, depending on how you how you look at it. So anyway, so he so he's continued to certainly like be pretty prolific. We talked about he's doing the the Lord of the Rings series, or or maybe he is or isn't, or who knows what's going on with that. You know, I shared with you guys off podcast that I, I stumbled across at one point that there's a a movie called Spanish Movie that was made in Spain that is basically like the equivalent of like Scary Movie, but for Spanish films. It's a Wayans Brothers esque farce centered on several darlings of this podcast, such as The Others and Pan's Labyrinth, with a bunch of you know spoofs of the movies at this time. And I think one of the reasons why that's worth bringing up isn't because that is of any significance on its own, but that this movie really was of a certain moment. You know, and despite the fact that this is not, I would argue that this is not on par with Del Toro's work at that time, this is sort of a, a runner up. It's definitely part of this strange early 2000s wave of pretty impressive like paranormal horror and surreal films that include things like Abrilos Ojos and Wreck. Um, like Spanish horror was really having a moment. Um, it was kind of a trend and like a, a quality trend that was happening. And it's not something that that's going on now, but historically speaking, you know, it was a, it was a bit of a flash in the pan, even though it was an impressive one. And so I would say that, it's worth noting that this is uh, a mark of a certain movement in the genre where that particular, you know, country was, was reaching the the mainstream with these genre films. And this one is not necessarily the, the peak of that, but I argue that it's probably in the top three. All right. Well, Vic, uh, what's your food for thought on this film? Uh, does it make you ponder great imponderables or, Naval gaze or or what? Well, John, you mentioned the the phrase kinder kinder horror, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yes, someone which someone used that, which I think is genius. I found sort of fascinating. Exactly. Well, it's uh, one of the quotes that I made a note of was from uh, a Guardian review by Peter Bradshaw, who said of the orphanage, "quote It revives the genre's great theme." <laughs> Vic, uh, you're returning the favor. I was going to use this quote. Go ahead. <laughs> yes. 
It revives the genre's great theme, our profound yet unacknowledged fear of children. We are afraid of their vulnerability, which is our vulnerability, in the mysterious otherness of their private mental worlds. And I found that a really interesting quote because this we've talked a lot in the course of this season about kids and scary kids and ghost kids and the twins in the shining and you know it, it is a theme that sort of comes up over and over again either as antagonist or as the children being sort of the subject of the horror in terms of imaginary friends and that sort of thing and it, and even in the genre as a whole i mean it seems there's a there's a lot of it in haunted house films because they're so family centric but the god knows there's there's plenty of it in lots of other movies and so i just thought it would be interesting i i would love to hear what your guys thought is so we we certainly acknowledged it as a trope of the genre and even as an effective one but why is it so effective? Because I'm not sure that Bradshaw's breakdown of their vulnerability is our vulnerability. That doesn't ring very true to me, although the otherness of their private mental worlds does seem to hit on something. That children do seem to occupy this space that is so different from the adult world. And even though we've all experienced it, it can still seem sort of alien when kids talk about imaginary things in a way that seems real that that as adults we we simply can't conjure anymore no pun intended well i want rich to weigh in on this especially because he has more direct experience uh, as a parent than i do but as i prepare comments on this very quote i'll i'll jump in and, and say that it is crucial to to the film because the mother's inability to truly connect with her son, to sort of regain that connection to the childlike reality, despite the love that they share, is tragic and yet entirely understandable as she's left that sphere of consciousness that she shared with the ghost children when she was a child. And she can no longer access it with her son while he's alive. It's only when it's too late that she can possibly go back to that sphere of consciousness. And that is kind of where the movie resolves is that she does seem to get back into the headspace and, and become a, the same kid that she was when she was with these orphans originally. And I do think that's very cool. And I do think it's very intentional. And I think it, it's uh, something that works within this film. And I think that this movie as Bradshaw points out, it, it captures something that I think is rarely explored. Even as someone who isn't a parent, it, it resonated with me, both watching the movie and seeing it crystallized in that review. I understood the we are afraid of their vulnerability, which is our vulnerability, to mean that we are afraid of, I mean, we take their fears and, and the risks that they face as our own, you know, uh, which I'm sure you understand as parents, you know, that you're terrified of what may happen to them. And so you take it on on a personal level as though it was a threat to yourself. That That's how I saw that. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe. I mean, I don't know. I mean, frankly, like, at least your explanation makes a little more sense. I read the same exact article and I like rolled my eyes at that quote and skipped over it. It felt like it was trying to make 
this uh, poignant connection to children and horror and, and really reaching to me. I mean, I'll certainly say, especially within the context of this film, and maybe this is what you were getting at, John, at least this is what I was getting from you, is the idea that as a parent for something to happen to your child, even if it was completely of your child's doing, is ultimately your doing. Like, you're responsible for their their safety, and so yep. anything that, that happens to them, regardless of your involvement, is is ultimately your fault. And so I guess I can see some value in, in that. I mean, I, I do think that this movie markets a lot in themes of of like of grief and and longing and guilt and and regret and so it's using what you're talking about to to mine that and get at something that makes it relatable on a human level i will say that you know i don't think it goes especially deep with those themes i think that it does a a well enough job to create a pretty fleshed out character and relationship that holds the movie together and gives it sort of a a deeper meaning, but I do think that it is not an especially deep character storyline. Like, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about terrified and like my reluctance to like return to it because of the, the, the lack of character. I'd say this movie like corrects that to some extent, but still isn't, isn't necessarily winning any prizes in that, in that category. So I don't know. I'm, I'm a little hesitant to, to praise it for, truly mining the depths of our, our relationships with children. Yeah. Well, I, I admit, yeah, it's not like super deep and ultra compelling. I I think that one of my favorite things about the movie is that fractious and charged relationship between the, the mother and son where he's going through so much and she can't completely understand it. And he is sort of existing in a consciousness that's half in reality and half in fantasy. And it's very difficult for them to really communicate. And he's just, he's so emotional. And that, that just, it felt authentic to me and it it felt sad. And and yet it felt, it's so difficult because of the gap and the gulf between parents and children as much as they, you know, want to, they have such a desire to, to communicate. Like there's, they're just living in completely different realities and that's almost inescapable. And that can, that miscommunication can have tragic effects or uh, consequences. And I think that this movie nails that, that fear and the possibilities that could stem from that. Vic, what do you think about it? Well, I agree, John. I think that's where the horror in this film is. This is not necessarily in the mother-son relationship. I think that's I think that's very well portrayed, and I agree with you about the the miscommunication in that. But that's not there's there's nothing there's nothing new added to that. That's not like a the the, the exceptional element of the film. It's very well done, but to me, the horror is in the children's world. It's that if we could see the world from Simon's perspective, this whole mystery would be solved. But it's all about this mother trying to get into the mind of her son on that day to put on that mask, to, to have, you know, hurt her, to, you know, slammed her hand in the door. Where did he run to? Where did he hide? And then into the minds of the ghosts that she ultimately has to 
go back to playing the childhood game and put herself back into those shoes. That is the the thing, like I said, that I pointed out in that quote, the alienness of the child's world really is foreign to adults. And I feel that as a parent and you do your best to play along, but sometimes they take it seriously in a way that you, you really can't appreciate. And that to me, that's where they, that's where they really mine some interesting horror that feels a little bit new or a little bit undiscovered, uh, in this film, there's some significant stuff here. Again, I don't think it's I don't think it's played out in terms of historical significance. I know we've moved on from that, but I'm just saying I don't think that that's had any sort of ripple effects into the the horror genre. But within this contained story, I think there's a lot of really interesting food for thought. One other thing that ties back into something we've talked about with uh, Devil's Backbone. Bayona said, in the wake of the repressive Franco regime, ghost stories became a way of speaking metaphorically about what happened in Spain. A ghost story doesn't have to be a a horror story. That's the lesson that I learned as a kid watching Spanish movies about the Franco regime. They deal with ghosts, with loss. Ghosts is something psychological, not related to visual effects. Everything in this script happens in the mind of Laura. And I think it is interesting to kind of tie it back to the Spanish Civil War and Franco again and sort of uh, almost a a sub-sub-sub-genre that that stemmed from that. (laughs) Well, there's something, too, I I just noted, I made a quote from Roger Ebert about this, that you may be capable of walking into any basement on Earth – but if you go down the stairs into the darkened basement of the house you grew up in, do you still – feel something. And I just think that's that that is that journey of being an adult and getting down into that that kid's headspace that that I think really sort of quantifies what is exceptional about this movie. But I, the the stuff about the the Franco regime and stuff too, I think that's all very interesting. And I did want to point out too just I know the Devil's Backbone is done and didn't make it any further in this but it did advance a you know a couple of rounds in oh, this yeah. tournament and uh, obviously uh, del toro produced this and del toro watched terrified and said fuck that's a good movie i want to do i want something to do with that and so you know his i feel like his even though he's never made a great horror film i think it's i think that's fair to say would you agree with that yeah even though he's never made a great horror film, he is a a force in the genre, and his fingerprints feel like they're all over it. And that he is he is trying to tap people that he thinks can do that, and their product has some part of his vision in it. It's it's very interesting. I mean, I, I it reminds me of uh, I'm sorry, Rich. It reminds me of a coaching tree in in football. Mm-hmm. That I feel like Del Toro's his his influence on the genre exceeds his actual output as a director. Well, almost like a impresario, right? I mean, he he does have a a large presence in our tournament. You know, we're looking at thirty two films going back to the beginning of cinema, and Del Toro's fingerprints in one way or another um, have endured round after round, and certainly. 
uh, all the way up to up to our final eight. So I think that's a very interesting and valid point. That's interesting. I mean, I think you guys are making a lot of good points that I agree with. I just like, you know, this this is a very subjective thing. It's it's not analytical. I just think it's worth bringing up for food for thought is that the stuff that you're talking about is just not what's stuck with me. Like having, you know, not seen this film in, in a couple of months at this point. And I'm not quite sure. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sort of identify where that is. I, I think for me, there may be something to, you know, and this starts to branch into to the rewatchability questions that when you, when you think about like the, the mechanics of this movie, I think that they do it a disservice to some extent. You know, and I, I think that the first time that you watch this movie, like it has a great mystery that that it's that it's built on, um, where you're trying to piece together how things happen, and it, it does give you something to think about in terms of uh, plotting and, and story. And that, like, you'll spend the next day working, you know, through your head, working through the, like the plot in your head, which is cool. But like, also like the the movie kind of suffers from it because some of the plot points that we've discussed on this podcast, like the, the social worker or the, the wallpaper over the cellar door, which, which maybe there's a reasonable explanation for, but I could never figure it out. Like I actually seem like, uh, kind of like plot holes or, or contrivances that you only forgive when you don't know where the story is going. And once it's revealed, they don't hold much water. So I guess like my, maybe my, maybe my faith in the movie got shaken a little bit by seeing it multiple times despite the fact that I had a pretty like visceral reaction to the film, uh, especially the, the first time I saw it. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's tough. Like you said, like all these, I feel like all these emotions and these, these like psychological devices are, are clearly on display, but I don't know. For me, they just, they didn't lead to much ponderance. Like it's a, it's a movie I remember for like it's, it's shocks and like for its tenderness and for a certain level of craftsmanship, but, but not for its ideas. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's stuff here. Um, and I'm enjoying to an extent digging back into it from this remo- remove at, at least a month, two months, however long since we saw the movie. Um, and I'm kind of away from my visceral emotional reaction to the film, but I'm generally on the same page. And I do want to revisit Bayona's quote for a minute because it it segues to my final food for thought idea here. As he said that this is a a real drama of a woman who can't deal with loss. I get that. But is that what the haunted house subgenre needs? Don't we have a ton of dramas? And I mean a metric fucking ton about loss. Even I will say the loss that parents experience when their child dies Lots of movies about that. This is not untrodden ground. And if you're doing that, you're competing with a lot of artistic heavyweights. And the orphanage is admirably affecting in its approach. I I will say that. But I would have preferred if this movie, for our purposes as a haunted house film, gave us an act three that escalated from the horror, and I mean the horror the sequences of the genre, not the sort of supernatural drama stuff, but the horror sequences. If it escalated from that, something it gave us only in fits and starts along the way, and then it gave us a kick-ass horror movie ending, that would have solidified this movie in the haunted house pantheon. But instead, it made the creative choice 
to be the 152nd best movie to deal with a parent's grief at losing their child. Congrats. Here's your ribbon. I think it was a mistake. So, John, you're you're saying it would have been better if, say, a platoon of soldiers had showed up at the end and all started shooting each other? Well, actually, um, our points ending does not (laughs) blow me away. (laughs) But, yes, I would like a horror movie ending of some kind. And our point had a much more traditional horror movie ending than this. Well, and and to be clear, a a John Evans third act actually starts at the 20 minute mark of the film. So (laughs) the soldiers could show up in the middle, at the end, like anywhere in between. Ouch. Fair enough. (laughs) All right. Well, let's, uh, is it, is it time to move on to rewatchability? I'm ready for it. Okay. Uh, Vic, why don't you kick us off on rewatchability and then we'll go to Rich. I mean, I think there are two levels of rewatchability that are important for this movie. And the first is that as everyone heard me live on camera really sort of solidify in my head that it was not Tomas's ghost, but in fact Simone with the mask on uh, in, the, in the hallway, there are a lot of elements. Now, I could just be dumb. So it may just be that dumb people need to watch a movie a bunch of times, and that's okay too. Nick, that was really embarrassing for you. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's, and there's, and there's lots of shame in that, John, and I have to, and I have to voice that publicly in front of everyone, and that's fine. I think in our last episode we should like do a little uh, supercut of the most embarrassing moments through the whole season. Let's oh, get our intern to go through all the all the recordings and, and put that together. Anyway, please yes. continue. That's a great idea. <laughs> but I the, but the point is that there are I think a lot of details in the script that play out very well visually and that do reward multiple viewings. And I feel like I have noticed new things each time I've watched it and been impressed by things that I'd seen before, been impressed by different things when I was watching it again. The other thing is, John, you asked me about Terrified, and I don't remember if I answered, like, is this a movie that you share with other people? It's a movie that I share with other horror fans. Like, with hardcore horror fans, I say, you should watch Terrified. Uh, no, wait, wait, hold not- on one second, though. Hold on. Like, and I don't want to bring up a movie that isn't known to a lot of people. But I think it's funny that there's also a movie called Terrifier. And I think that if a a quote unquote normie, a person that like, yeah, I don't mean no offense to anyone, but, you know, maybe not someone's mother-in-law who's in their 60s or or whatever. But like if somebody just like a normal person who's not a super fan of horror was just like, I want to watch something really fucking scary for Halloween. I think you could say terrified. Now, you would not say terrifier. Terrifier is for hardcore horror people. Because that is a sick fucking movie, okay? But I don't think this Terrified is, like, so crazy that 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 normal people can't handle it. Just because the orphanage, yes, elderly women, my mom, would, would really, you know, be safe to watch the orphanage. Sorry, I don't mean to totally derail your point, but, like, just, am I crazy for making that statement? 
No, I mean that's. I think that's a that's certainly a relevant point. I I've actually heard a lot of talk about Terrifier, and I'm, I'm not quite sure how that wound its way into the conversation. Well, just because li- but, literally, it's almost the same title. <laughs> yes, no, no, and I, and I see that come up on a lot of like horror blogs and stuff. So I've never seen it. I'm I'm now that you've described it the way you have, I'm I'm now even more intrigued by it. But dude, it's a it's a great movie for what it is. But yeah, that is for the hardcore horror fan. Yeah. How do you say the title in Spanish, John? Atorado. <laughs> 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 so anyways, I this movie has in terms of its rewatchability a different a different vibe. And John, I know that you, you clearly look down on the elderly instead of revering them as treasure troves. <laughs> that's, that's fine. They could just, they could just, they could just join the, uh, the Scandinavian people in the list of, of just, you know, your basket of deplorables, but. <laughs> oh, nicely put. <laughs> Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> sorry, yeah, <laughs> I'm just, sorry. To, sorry to the AARP and the Scandinavians. <laughs> John Evans doesn't give a shit what you think about horror movies. But but, but, but no, I, I mean, mean like no. But I'm saying point, this movie, in terms yeah. of in terms of who you can share it with, Everyone. and still as a horror fan enjoy it. Uh, this movie has a has a different audience that is still valuable. Again, my wife watched. The orphanage with me and oh and sobbed uncontrollably and I would say in her own weird way enjoyed it in a way that I can probably okay. never share terrified with her. That would I would have to I would have to watch a, a lot of rom coms to make up for that. So she might I, be sobbing, but not for the same reason. Yeah. Uh, she would leave. She would she would leave. She would not watch. She would not watch all of that movie. I'm. Pretty sure she wouldn't get past the opening shower scene. So that's, but like I said, that doesn't, when we talk about rewatchability, there's a bunch of different facets to it. Mm-hmm. I think both these, both of these movies are good to watch in terms of rewarding multiple viewings. They both have a high rewatchability factor. They are both good movies to share. But I think just with different audiences, and I just think that that distinction is worth making, that The Orphanage, as we said before, is a good bridge. It's a good movie if you really want to watch a horror movie at Halloween, but maybe you've got somebody who who can't quite handle something like Terrified or, God forbid, Terrifier. You know, you want to have this in your DVD collection that you can sort of point to and go, oh, well, let's watch this because you're going to get your fix and they're not going to freak out and leave the room. By the way, Terrify is just a fucking snuff film. Yeah. No, I've seen that. I was a, I was a co-star in that actually. It's, I don't want to get into it. but The shorter the title gets, the more depraved the movie gets. I'm sorry. Well, that's true because in my, in my research of – uh, South American horror films, there is a movie called Snuff that is just like apparently purported to be a snuff film, except that there's also a Snuff 2, which, <laughs> which would seem to well, undermine if we ever, the credibility of the first film. If we ever do uh, cannibal movies, we can get into, you know, there's a lot of rich stories. Uh, the, the, the first found footage movie of any note was a a cannibal film and people were arrested and tried 
for what was purported by some to be real. And of course they had to prove that they, it wasn't, that it was all marketing. Uh, I think it's cannibal, cannibal Holocaust is the, is the film. So I saw cannibal Holocaust at the new Beverly. So did I. There you go. Did we see it together, John? Is no. this another one of those? We're like, wait, were we were we together for this? No, I don't think so. I mean, we probably caught it the same week, but we didn't uh, we didn't put the plans together. How sad! Fascinating. Uh, yeah. So, anyways, I I give this movie a high rewatchability rating. As do I, Rich. I just want to throw up before we get too far away from it. Uh, for the record, uh, my mother in law watched. I would venture to say a solid fifty percent of the movies without complaint and made it to the end. Like, and I'm talking about everything that we've talked about in this competition. Um, she was locked here in our house. She went along willingly. And I don't know who this is. A, I don't know who this makes a point for John or Vic, but she did start the orphanage with me. And I was like, she's going to be into this. This is very like story based. And it got to the scene where, uh, where, uh, what's her name? Is it Laura? Yeah. Laura. It got to the scene where uh, Laura is confronted by Simone in the mask in the in the bathroom, and he slams the, the the door on her finger, and she falls into the tub. And that's the point where Teresa said, "Okay, I'm out," and she got up. And left. <laughs> I mean that that is a visceral like slap you in the face horror yeah. moment. There's no doubt about that. I mean, this movie has those moments. So, so it's interesting because I feel like that's like kind of a point for John. I guess that's kind of a point for John because like Vic, to your point, it's like the story should be the thing that wraps you up in it. But it weirdly is like the horror elements that, that kind of got in the way of, you know, the archetype. I can't think of the, the correct way to phrase it, but the, the archetypal like mother-in-law review of this film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyway. It it's, first- not, it's not that accessible, right? I guess that's the weird thing is that like to, to your point about like the Jay Biona quote, it's like it, the movie is a, it's a little all over the place. Like it, it kind of doesn't know whether it wants to be like a, this, this familial drama. Does it want to be like a just completely like horror movie as, as evidenced by like the bus crash, which is, which is honestly like one of the most shocking, like practical effects I think in this entire competition for this particular subgenre. Yeah, it's good. It's very good. Um, that thing is is very grisly, and um, you know, or like I don't know. Yeah, it's it's like at some points it's soft horror, and sometimes it's hard horror, and sometimes it's not horror at all, and sometimes it's completely derivative horror. Like when you get into like the the medium sequence of it all, which is like a well executed version i think or at least an, an interesting take on the medium but not a particularly original one i don't know anyways i, I, I guess this doesn't none of this speaks to rewatchability for me the rewatchability of the film is it's kind of right down the line i'd call this a, a medium i mentioned this earlier but it's like the movie definitely demands like a second viewing once you get like the whole story of it, like once you reach the end of it the first time and you know what the ending is, you kind of want to go back and see it again with fresh eyes. But I feel like at this point in my life, like a third or a fourth time of watching this movie might be pushing it. It's something I might come back to a few years down the line, or if it's something that I want to show to someone else, but like the strengths of this movie, I thought were kind of highlighted by the, the scavenger hunt. Like this movie, falls in that same category. Like it's a good mystery. It's occasionally predictable, but like it takes a few twists and turns and like, it does ask you to think along the way. 
But a scavenger hunt is really hard to repeat once you know where all the clues are. And I feel like this movie sort of suffers from the from the same fate a little bit. Like I, I love the first ride through it, but like I don't know how many more times I want to take that again. Yeah, I mean to dovetail off of your earlier point, I think this movie is suffering from an identity crisis where it does not know exactly what it is, and it's trying to be too many things, and kind of consequently, it's it's none of them, and it, it's kind of always going to leave every demographic a little bit displeased because it's either too extreme or, you know, too sappy or it's like, it's the porridge that's the temperature is not ever right for any of the, you know, Goldilocks is going to go on to the next bowl. I guess it's just, you know, it, it's, it's just not quite in the sweet spot for anybody, but yeah, I agree also that this is a movie that merits at least two, maybe three viewings and I, I think that that's a huge compliment overall in the whole universe of films. But agreeing with you, Rich, that at this point, having seen it as many times as I have, I have no need to ever watch this movie again, personally. I'm good. I don't think it has anything else to teach me. I mean, yeah, maybe my wife could get into it. I do have to look long, you know, far and wide for quote-unquote horror movies that she might watch in Halloween time, but I don't think it's for her. I really don't. I I don't think that anything this movie does hits one of her sweet spots with entertainment. I think it would be mostly scary and miserable for her, not enjoyable. And I do guess that, yeah, some future friends or children, whoever might fit the target demo for the movie... And if I thought they were, I'd recommend it because it has a lot to offer. I, I, I think it has a niche. It's not a bad movie by any means. It's even a very good Haunted House movie. I voted for it up to a point. But I, I can't say that the orphanage excites me at this point in any way. Not stylistically, viscerally, emotionally, or thematically. Nothing truly resonates and makes it special. I did think some of the stuff that we dug up for this podcast is interesting, And I do think that the movie had the potential to reach those kinds of heights. And I saw that along the way. It hits high points that demonstrate its potential. But the overall thrust and direction of the film, as culminated with the ending that we get, shows that at the end of the day, subjectively, this just isn't my kind of movie. And for one thing, if I haven't pointed it out already, I hate the dead kid trope in movies of any genre. I find it so lazy and manipulative to have a protagonist whose child is dead. It almost always rubs me the wrong way. And I don't think the orphanage transcends that facile, cheaply emotional heartstring pulling. And uh, Gravity, the Sandra Bullock film, also a Spanish director, pulls that card. And that's my least favorite thing about the movie. So the fact that I like The Orphanage at all is a tribute to all the cool horror shit that is embedded in it and and some, as I said, some good ideas about the, the consciousnesses that we go through in the you know, strange journey of life as we go from a magical world of childhood to the rational world of adulthood and, and how that creates a disconnect between generations. It's hard to get around. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff. 
But overall, I think we should get to the vote at this point because it's an easy one for me. So I'll start for dramatic purposes. Terrified. <laughs> it's a it's a pretty stark choice in my view. I'm not in this competition to watch arty pseudo horror that makes my wife weep. Sorry, Vic. <laughs> that, that might be a low blow, but it's just it's a movie that could be an award grubbing trailer that this movie could have with lots of bittersweet visuals, emotionally manipulative music. No, I'm here doing this podcast to find the best fucking haunted house movie of all time. And by God, the orphanage by that standard, it deserves to go no farther. It is up against the scariest movie in the goddamn tournament. And I think terrified is one of the 30 or 40 scariest movies ever fucking made in my book. I mean, it's up there top 50 at worst. So give me a break with this shit and let's move on. Honestly, if either of you guys vote for the orphanage, I'm going to, I'm going to revoke your horror cards right now. (laughs) Vic, go ahead. All right. I'm voting for terrified, but I think that there is a connection between some sort of emotional attachment to the characters in the film and the ability of a movie to draw an emotion out of you besides fear that increases the fear and makes a horror film more successful as a horror film. So I think that that Mm -hmm. this film was aspiring to that, even if it loses its way a little bit and maybe veers too far in one direction but I don't think that those two things are mutually exclusive. And so, again, Terrified terrified has my vote. But I, 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 I sort of question the criteria that you used in casting your vote. Yeah, well, I mean, you can go back to our podcast about the movie. And I just I'm, – I'm really saying if you're – if it seems cheap and facile and manipulative and you're tugging on my heartstrings in a way that I feel is inauthentic or – it's not entirely earned. That's what rubs me the wrong way. And well, I, I won't totally say that that's true of this movie, but 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 that ending fucking is. And we talked about it. And yeah. I don't think you guys argue with me very convincingly. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm not, John. I'm not. I'm not indicting your vote, but I'm saying that your your criteria that you laid out for what you would vote for. I feel like you're missing something. I feel like that the the superior horror films do have some kind of emotional connection with the characters and do invest some time and effort in establishing those connections. I'm just going to say, I agree with that. And like, as I pointed out, like, I think that will be terrified's fatal flaw is the fact that it, it is a damn scary movie. It's just that it's not much more than that. And that certainly gives it an, an edge here. And I think that, you know, like we were sort of like agreeing on this point earlier, but like, I don't necessarily feel like the fact that, that, that uh, the orphanage is a is kind of like you know jack of all trades and a master of none is is necessarily a problem. I think that there's a room for a movie like that, especially a movie like this that is trying to bring horror to sort of cross over into more of a a, a indie audience, which it very successfully did um, back. Well, very successfully, maybe not, but successfully did it was successful in, in what it set out to do. And I think that it probably did expand its, its base. Whereas like terrified might be something that is fairly isolated to a certain type of a viewer. 
so I, I don't know. To me, it's like kind of apples and oranges. Like I, I wouldn't say that that Terrified is just like crushing this movie. I think that, that the orphanage still has a lot of firm ground to stand on, and I would highly recommend to anyone. I actually found the first viewing of this movie to be a bit of a revelation. Like I was not that interested in it and had kind of written it off, and I loved the first time I watched this movie. So I don't want to undersell this film at all. Yeah, I also I, I want like to clarify for the record that I don't think I've said anything like I am dogmatically saying this is the paradigm for horror and I don't like characters and I don't want to, to feel anything for anyone. And um, I, I, I think maybe you're, you're taking that from the fact that I thought it was original that this movie, uh, Terrified, managed to pull off an ensemble cast where we're not that emotionally invested in anyone and like – I read scripts for a living basically most of the year. And I think that one of the biggest notes I give anyone is that you're doing yourself such a disservice by not using a protagonist driven uh, structure because it's just so much easier to get your reader or viewer to become emotionally invested in a story. If you're identifying with a protagonist, like, because that's just sort of human nature is to say, I, I understand this person. I like them. I know what they're rooting for. I, I, I mean, I know what they're trying to do and I'm rooting for them to succeed. And for a movie to pull off, to be compelling without playing any of those like easy tricks that just work on audiences. I, I, yeah, I, I, my hat's off to them, but I'm not saying that that's the only way to tell a story. All I'm simply saying is that it's, it's cheap. And I think it's crass to, to try to connect with an audience by saying, well, what if your kid was dead? Wouldn't you sympathize with this character? I, I just, I find that despicable in a way. It's such an easy shortcut. That's all I'm saying. I mean, I, I, I guess just like the one thing I want to point out is that I don't feel like the dead kid is a, is, is a, is a crutch or like an, an easy way for you to relate to this character. Like it's the backbone of the fucking movie. Like it is the film. Okay, what I, I I'm not trying to beat that to death with this movie. It's just that if you want to take something that's like, well, John's like manifesto for cinema, I would say that yes, that is that is an overarching uh, criteria that I apply. But I'm not in any way like making my judgment between these two films based on my overall um, rules about what movies should or shouldn't be. I think I've, I mean, we've talked about these movies at great length and I just have problems with the orphanage and its execution and its creative choices and its writing and its music and its directing and its structure and all kinds of things that about this specific movie. And I am much more overall generally pleased with and impressed by terrified. That's it. It's like, I'm talking about these movies specifically not applying some kind of um you know my rule book for what horror movies are or should be i think we should continue fighting about the movie that we all just voted for (laughs) 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 this is it guys we did it we finished another round come on everybody everybody raise your empty glass and uh, uh examine the the remnants of all the alcohol we've drunk. I did expect this to be a clean sweep. Um, Wait, for the record, I did not vote for anything. 
I thought you I did. Know, I know my vote doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rich, well, go ahead. Um, Vic, I'm telling you, if, if you, Vic, if you had gone hard on the orphanage, like you might have been able to, to win me over. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, so my, my opinion doesn't really matter at this point. I will say going into both these movies, like I, I would, I would almost say that like the orphanage might have an edge if it was a newer film that it felt dated, but truth be told, like terrified just because of the, the nature of like of foreign films, um, like doesn't necessarily feel any, any fresher or, or older than the orphanage does to me. And there are both things I watched for the first time for, for this podcast. And I will say that they both struck me pretty hard, but at the end of the day, like terrified did leave a, a bigger impression on me. And certainly in terms of, as you're saying, in, in the realm of, of horror specifically, it is a it is a stronger horror film. So sure, I will I will cast my vote for it. You know, Rich, it, it it does warm my heart to hear you say that. So thank you. Because at the end of the day, that's what this tournament is. Um, it's not the best supernatural drama. It's the best horror film. So yeah, you do have to succeed within the rules of the genre. All right. Any any final thoughts, Vic? Or are you ready to? Um... Yeah, The Shining's basically a supernatural drama. But okay, we can cover that. <laughs> oh, good lord, <laughs> John! You managed to, to just to reopen a can of worms, and I had so many things to say, and I was like, "No, we're at the end of the episode. Just save it." John's going to be there in two weeks when we record again. Yeah. And in two weeks, we're only covering one movie, and it is The Shining. And I'm actually looking forward to crawling up the ass of that fucking movie. <laughs> you know, I was looking forward to it, but now that you put it that way... It's I'm, proctological. I'm a, yeah, I'm a little less comfortable. Can we, <laughs> can we do the autopsy and, uh, and, and crawl? Well, I guess we're both crawling inside of it. I think Jesus the, Christ. Is there any ass stuff in an autopsy? I'm not sure. Not. <laughs> Depends on the cause of death, John. <laughs> I, refuse, I refuse to complete your human centipede of shining worship. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Well done, Rich. Well, all right. For Rich and Vic, I'm John. Adios, motherfuckers. Good night, everybody. Have a good night, guys. <laughs>